right. I apologize for the late start here, folks. Technology got the best of me, temporarily at least. Um, before we get started, uh, with deference to uh, a Jewish friend here, we'd like to offer up a prayer. Anton, would you care to do that for us? You should turn your mic on. Sure thing. Father God, thank you today for uh, this opportunity to come together and to discuss ways that we can better represent your love in this city. Uh, God, we pray that the conversation is effective and that it's clear and that pathways forward are, um, are also clear. Uh, we pray for um, a peaceful exchange and for um, uh, clarity and wisdom for how to have this conversation. Father, we, your sons and daughters, love you and we look forward to the ways you continue to grow our stories. Uh, teach us how to follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you. Welcome, everyone, tonight. My name is Rachel Elliott. I'm the president of McKinney First PAC, and um, our group is hosting this event. So um, we're very happy to be here, and we're very thankful for the city of McKinney's Fire Station Number 7 for hosting Woo! us in our location. So please give a round of applause for Fire Station Number 7. Um, so this is our second forum that we've done. The first one we had located downtown at the library, and the first one we, um, it was a great success, and we had a lot of fun. Stephen Callis was our uh, moderator, and we had five different panelists, um, and this time we have five new panelists, and we're gonna discuss the um, topic of critical race theory in schools. Is it helpful or is it hurtful? Um, we're looking forward to just presenting a total of six forums with five different panelists to the city of McKinney in different topics. We've already scheduled our next one, and that will be located at the John and Judy Gay Library. That'll be September 27th. Um, the question that we're going to be diving into is, what is the role of government um, um, when it comes to emergencies? So we're going to be diving into that um, topic. But uh, for this topic, we have five wonderful uh, panelists. And what we're going to do is give a few moments um, for each panelist to introduce themselves, starting off with um, our moderator, Stephen Callis. Um, for those who were able to listen to our first form and then um, and being able to be a part of this one, um, he's going to explain a little bit about how um, it's going to go. But thank you guys for being here. All right, thank you. Well, the idea uh, more or less stemmed from the idea that we're really good about staking out what we think, staking out what we believe, and when you're really good at that, you tend to tune out what the other people have to say. Now, it's really easy to say you're wrong, but if you don't take five minutes, listen to the, what the other person's saying, at least give them the courtesy of having a thought or an opinion that differs from yours, you run into problems. If for no other reason than if you at least understand the other argument or the other point of view, you can better understand your point of view or your ideas. So um, I, I have plenty of time to speak my own opinion. I, I do a podcast uh, at least four times a week. And so when the idea was floated that we were going to do this, I volunteered immediately because I don't really need to add anything to my opinion. 
So I, I volunteered to be the moderator, trying to play straight down the middle and try and stay as objective as possible. And then we got uh, a group of people in each and every time that have their own opinions and are more than capable of holding their own. So what we're going to do now is turn it over to our panelists. They'll have about two minutes to introduce themselves, who they are, what they do, and why they're here. Go ahead. Good evening. My name is Cody Weaver. Uh, I'm a Plano ISD School Board trustee. I've lived in Plano since 2017. My wife's born and raised, so that's how I got there. Graduated from Texas A&M in 2013, and um, I'm here to contribute to the conversation. Uh, I've read uh, a lot of source material, and I really enjoy um, learning multiple sides of these complex uh, theories and how they are, uh, how they operate, and. Our practice in our society, and so it's been a really interesting uh, journey reading through a lot of this material and recognizing it in society. And uh, also, as you can tell, I'm Jewish, and when it comes to Jews and reading, uh, you, they say you can get uh, one problem and two Jews talking about it and have three opinions. So uh, definitely uh, looking forward to hearing from the other panelists and uh, not just contributing but learning from some of them tonight. My name is Lydia Ortega. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Try again. Hi, my name is Lydia Ortega. And I'm an economist. I have a PhD that I earned in 1986. It was a long time ago, folks. At the time, they were very, well, I was so rare that a daughter once told me, uh, you shouldn't exist by all standards, by all probability. A female Hispanic PhD in economics is so rare that you're in the tail of the distribution, you shouldn't even exist. But I do, and I spent 30 years on campus working as a professor, as a department chair, interacting with our working class students uh, at San Jose State University in California. And they have my heart. So I came to bring you my thinking, but I can't stop my heart because we make a difference and it matters to these people, uh, to our students so significantly. I abhor anything that hurts them and disadvantages them. So I need to hear from you guys and I'm looking forward to this discussion. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jessica Holsey. Uh, I'm a mother of four. Uh, I wrote the first homeschool curriculum ever, a thousand years ago. <laughs> and uh, I look at, <laughs> and uh, I have lived, um, was born in uh, Oak Cliff, grew up there, um, married my husband, uh, who went to second grade, I went back to second grade with, and all the way forward. And then uh, he um, moved to Anna, and raised our boys, in, from in Richardson, Anna and Anna. And then, recently, we moved to McKinney, the last four years, um, because we're only can't take, all, can't take care of all the land. So, um, here we are. 
Uh, I'm here, I think, because I'm a school with a, a school teacher. I was uh, I I asked to go to black schools the year before the mandated crossover, and uh, so I have uh, taught in uh, black culture, and uh, then I have written a homeschool curriculum. I think that's why I got this. <laughs> Thank you. That's quite all right. Apparently, I am too. I've never met him like that. Like me. So. Uh, anyways, my name is Stacy Ann Arias. I live in Melissa, Texas. I've lived in Allen and Plano as well, uh, in Palm County. I've lived in this area since, oh God, way before I want to acknowledge, but I've been here for a bit. I have six kids all together three bonus babies and three uh, babies of my heart. One is here, they range from age 27 all the way down to 12. Uh, you're so welcome, uh, 12 year old. Uh, they all have been taking some part in my civic engagement uh, opportunities and they've seen me through every campaign. Uh, they've seen the good, the bad, the ugly about politics in this area and they still continue to support me, which I love them. Um, I want to be brutally honest, uh, I don't know what I'm doing up here again. <laughs> uh, this is a topic that is not in my wheelhouse, and I've done a lot of reading. Uh, I think we've all taken a lot of notes, and I still don't know what I'm talking about. I think the more that I read, the more I, I realize I don't know what the right answers are. But what I do know is that we have an impassioned portion of our population that deserves a voice. And uh, today I'm here to learn how to be a better uh, policymaker a better parent, and definitely a better citizen. So I appreciate y'all being here. Well, good evening, my name is Antoine Malone, and um, I love God, I love the church, and I'm trying to figure out how to best love other people. I'm in this conversation for that reason. Part of this conversation has created uh, confusion, and uh, division, and uh, lack of clarity. So um, I've done some research in this area. I care deeply about what it means to love other people well. And I think having this conversation and trying to create some clarity around it would move the ball forward in doing that. And so um, I'm excited to be a part of this. My wife is here. I have four kids. Live here in McKinney, citizen of the kingdom. I love each and one of you. And I'm looking forward to the conversation we're going to have today. All right. I think I've got all the microphones adjusted so we won't blow anybody's eardrums out. The uh, first question I have is define CRT. Now I know that would take all night and I don't think we'd ever agree. So based upon um, some listening I had done earlier in the week, I'm going to go on to the four tenants. Would that be all right with you all if I read them real quick? Okay. And I'm going to summarize because they're not entirely short and I don't want to take up too much time. So this is out of the book, Critical Race Theory, the third edition and introduction. So uh, basically the, it starts out with the question, what do critical race theorists believe? 
Probably not every writer would subscribe to every tenet set out in the book, but many would agree on the following propositions. Racism is ordinary, not aberrational, meaning normal science. The usual way society does business, the common everyday experience of most people of color in this country. Second, most would agree that our purpose of white over color ascendancy serves important purposes, both psychic and material. For the dominant group, the first feature, ordinariness, means that racism is difficult to address or cure because it is not acknowledged. Colorblind or formal conceptions of equality expressed in rules that insist only on treatment that is the same across the board can thus remedy only the most blatant forms of discrimination, such as mortgage redlining or immigration dragnet in a food processing plant that targets Latino workers or the refusal to hire a black PhD rather than a white college dropout, which stand out and attract our attention. The second feature, sometimes called interest convergence or material determination, or determinism, excuse me, adds a further dimension because racism advances the interests of both white elites, materially, and working class whites, or whites, <laughs> physically, uh, physically, in large segments of society that have little incentive to eradicate it. Consider uh, litigation, which may have re uh, resulted in more self-interest of elite whites than desire to help blacks. The third theme of critical race theory, the social construction thesis, holds that race and races are products of social thought and relations, no objective, inherent, or fixed, I'm sorry, not objective, inherent, or fixed, they correspond with no biological or gender I'm sorry, genetic reality. Rather, races are categories that society invents, manipulates, or retires when convenient. People with common origins share certain physical traits, of course, such as skin color, physique, or hair textures, but these constitute only an extremely small portion of their genetic endowment. They are dwarfed by what we have in common and have little or nothing to do with distinctly human higher order traits, such as personality, intelligence, or moral behavior. That society frequently chooses to ignore these scientific truths, creates races and endows them with pseudo-permanent characteristics of greater interest to critical race theory. Another, somewhat more recent development concerns differential radicalism, or I'm sorry, racialism, my apologies, and its consequences. Critical writers in law, as well as social science, have drawn attention to the ways dominant society radicalizes, oh man, geez, I'm all over this word, it's racialized. I don't know why I see D for C, I apologize. Different minority groups at different times. In responses to shifting needs such as labor market, at one period, for example, society may have had little use for blacks, but much need for Mexican or Japanese agricultural workers. At another time, the Japanese, including citizens of long standing, may have had intense disfavor and removed to war, war relocation camps while society, society cultivated other um, sorry. Groups of color for jobs with war industry or as cannon fodder on the front. In one era, Muslims are somewhat exotic neighbors who go to mosques and pray several times a day. Harmless but odd, a few years later, they emerged as security threats. Um, I think I covered it, so rather take up more time. The final element concerns, I'm sorry, there was another paragraph or so explained, my apologies. The final element concerns the notion of unique voice of color coexisting in somewhat uneasy tension with anti-essentialism. The voice of color thesis holds that because of their different histories and experiences, 
experiences with oppression, black, American Indian, Asian, and Latino writers and thinkers may be able to communicate to their white counterparts matters that the whites are unlikely to know. Minority status, in other words, brings with it a presumed competence to speak to the race and racism. The legal storytelling movement goes, or I'm sorry, urges back black and brown writers to recount their experiences with racism and the legal system to apply their own unique perspectives to assess laws, master narratives. This topic too was taken up in a later book, later in this book. So I apologize for butchering that. My mouth got a little dry and the lights are a little dark. So having an off night, my apologies. So if we can agree that that is what the um, people that wrote the tenants out is what they have defined it as, we can go forward. Can we agree to that? Do we have to share the same idea? You don't have to agree if it's right or wrong, just that that's how they define it. Yeah. Is everybody okay with that? All right. So do you believe there's anything to be learned by studying this at an educational level and what level that may be? And we can start with whoever's comfortable with starting first. You can go first. Go ahead. Yes, so I, I you know, these are going to be my personal thoughts, personal beliefs based on what I read and what I think. Um, that there's not anything that qualifies me to speak about this more than anybody else that's read. I'm not a PhD. But when you look at this information, I think we just need to start from the bottom up. Is this, does this sound like the type of um, theory or framework that should be taught in kindergarten? Okay, no? Okay, first grade, and we keep working our way up, and then we can also ask, well, where did it start? Where was the first place that it was taught? And the first place it was taught was not a college, but a, well, at a college, but a law college. And so this first starts at the law school and then works its way down to the uh, regular colleges and now changing or taking the framework and being adapted into a uh, K through 12 model. And my opinion is that no, there, there's not really a place for this in K through 12. Um, I think in terms of a college setting or a law setting, that these are theories and understandings that probably people could benefit from understanding and knowing. Now, the, the actual implementation of the praxis, I don't necessarily agree with, but that's not to say that this shouldn't still be taught and discussed. I think, like anything, it's how you teach it. Okay, uh, I can go next. Am I on? Go ahead and turn it off and then back on. Um, so I'm going to be taking a very different uh, view on this. You heard a lot of words in there, and you can go deep into the words and the meaning of the words. I want a bird's eye view. I want to see what's happening as a result of all those words put into practice. And that's how I look at it. And with that bird's eye view, I have to say there's nothing to be learned from CRT at any level. Uh, in my personal view, it is a non-operational theory. Let me just give you one brief example of that because I only have two minutes. James Madison University recently posted a PowerPoint slide that has a list of features like your race, your ethnicity, your gender, and it has two columns. One, the first column is called the uh, agent, the one with privilege, so the privileged agent column. The second column over is called the oppressed target so right away, words matter. And when you call somebody an agent, it means that they are acting purposefully to target the other person in the call. 
So when I looked at that, I quickly went and said, all right, let me see, where do I line up? I looked at the oppressed column. By my race, I'm Latino. By my size, yeah, they look at size. Because apparently thin uh, athletic build is classified as privileged. And underweight or overweight is classified as a um, oppressed. So I'm oppressed. Uh, <laughs> my age, I'm over 50. Oppressed. My working class started out as a working class family, oppressed. My gender, woman, oppressed. All of these classify me as a target. What I'm telling you about it being broken is it can be anything you want it to be. Because if I look at the other side, the other column, and go through that one, I found out that I'm actually pretty privileged. My nationality, American. My religion, Christian, which is listed as a privilege, right. And my socioeconomic status class. I started as you know working class family and moved my way up to what I would call upper middle income. So it is not operational because it's so vaguely defined, it can be anything you want it to be. In other words, it doesn't have specific uh, things that you can test, that you can replicate. Matter of fact, you can look at black Americans who really uh, are predominantly there's large groups of Christians. They created this culture, this community for themselves. And many of them oppose same-sex marriages. At least they did in California when that was a valid initiative. So by that definition, you have people in the oppressed class uh, oppressing other people in the oppressed class. The number of ways you can go back and forth and not know whether you're being a target or uh, an agent is too variable. There's no theory here that you can test. I'll stop there. Uh, I just want to say ditto to one and ditto to two. And I would say that this is not uh, applicable uh, for all the reasons they have said uh, and, and not profitable for use in teaching in lower grades particularly, but uh, I can say nowhere. Uh, but because it is such a negative, 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 negative form of teaching, it pits people against each other based on skin color. And so I can see that as a negative way to impart knowledge. It is, I just can't say enough, ditto, ditto, negative. my life and anything that I've done in it in a way where I ask why not rather than why. Uh, you know, I am privileged, even though I'm a female, and I've really enjoyed working with uh, good old boys throughout my career. It's been very enjoyable and a very learning, a great learning experience, but I'm still privileged because when I walk out this door and my car breaks down, I guarantee you within five seconds someone's going to pull over and help me. Used to be because I thought I was cute. I'm getting a little older, maybe oppressed, but uh, uh, I guarantee you, no one's going to question me being pulled over there and help me. Um, so in the in the thought process of teaching children, whether they be kindergarten or higher ed, I'm coming from the higher ed perspective, but I have a 12 year old. I've taught younger kids, and I understand that they are little bitty sponges, 
and they just take everything that we have to offer, whether it's good, bad, or otherwise. So why don't we create curriculum that is not negative, 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 but giving voice to the brothers and sisters that are sitting next to my daughter. Letting her realize that her history is ingrained with her brothers and sisters next to her. I don't need to teach her the atrocities of slavery or what has come from that, not at a young level, but I certainly don't want to underestimate the quality and capacity that my child has to learn. Because you know what? They're learning it. They're learning it whether we're talking about it or not, because you know what? TikTok's talking about it. TikTok has taught my child so much about Donald Trump, about Joe Biden, about CRT, about racism, about every possible thing you can think of that you don't want to teach your child, they know it. So why am I going to allow control get into someone else about it? Let's work together to create curriculum that is not negative, 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 but positive, positive, positive. I'm not putting blame on my child about something that happened eons ago, but I'm letting them know what has occurred in an honest and hard way. So we create a curriculum that's age appropriate. We go to 9th through 12th grade. We step it up a bit. That's what we do in science. That's what we do in math. We step it up in, in complexity. And then when they go into higher ed, CRT is being taught in 30 colleges in the state, 300 colleges nationwide. And I guarantee you with academic freedom, it's seeping into your government classes, your history classes. Anything that pertains to education, you're bound to hear about. So let's take control of that rhetoric. Let's change it where it's not. It has such a negative connotation. But it is going to be ugly. It is going to be uncomfortable. And you know learning about my past, the mental illness in my family, the abuse, the addiction, it was ugly. I did not like hearing about it. But I've taught my children about my history. I've taught my children about the history of Virginia. Because yes, my family owned a plantation. And they benefited with my generation from selling that. But I told my children about that, not because I'm blaming them or anyone else, but I'm taking accountability for my history, and I'm showing them how I stopped things. Okay. I put a stop to it. There is no addiction in my family. There is no abuse because I stopped it because knowledge gave me power. Well, there's a there's a few there's a few things about this. Number one, I believe that curriculum should be age appropriate. And so, um, you know, the question of whether a critical race theory should be taught uh, to young children, what have you, is that, that is the job of our, our uh, teachers and those people to understand where the proper uh, maturity level is uh, for our students to understand content that is not always pleasant and requires a certain level of critical thinking uh, to engage it. And so, um, I, I would say that critical race theory can be taught in, in, in school as it pertains to or as it relates to the maturity levels in the, in the, in the, uh, in the education of the students. I want to I wanna offer a few things though uh, real quick as we, I want to try to again bring a little clarity to critical race theory and what it is that schools may be teaching if we grab critical race theory. Number one, uh, we, we had these four things that we just heard and and they do a fine job of describing critical race theories ideas about the default behaviors of our society where it pertains to law. Um, critical race theory as a discipline is a discipline designed to look at the legislative effects 
on race relationships in our society. Said more, said, said slightly differently, critical race theory is very narrowly looking at the laws that affect the racial outcomes uh, in our society to determine whether those laws are contributive to unjust disparities or facilitative to those unjust disparities. And if it finds that it is, it says, hey, we have these disparities that are unjust, let's do something about those. Um, and if it doesn't, then it leaves the conversation because it's only concerned with the legislative effects on society. I'm gonna probably say this repeatedly tonight, that critical race theory is a legislative evaluation theory, a critical evaluative um, tool to determine the legislative effect on race relations. That's critical race theory. I'm gonna quickly last thing here. Um, the young lady down the way gave a wonderful uh, picture of what uh, colleges are representing. What she described had little to do with, with the law. What she described was a race conversation in general, which we can have a conversation about that. And if there's people in here who want to have a conversation about how race and how race relationships are being taught, that's one thing. But critical race theory isn't that. Critical race theory is about the law and how it affects race relationships. And if it is facilitative to unjust race relationships, last thing, the tenets are designed to, re to, to reveal default behaviors in society where it pertains to creating law. So what it's saying is, hey, here are these four tenets. If we take our hands off the wheel, these tenets will lead us to make laws that may or may not be effective. So understand that our default behaviors may lean in this direction. Grab the wheel, straighten it, realizing that our defaults may pull us into this particular into this particular direction. Again, with the idea of making the most effective laws possible. Okay, so just so we're clear, and I don't think this is going to be a problem. This is not supposed to be a debate. This is a friendly discussion. Yeah. Um, so we do have some difference of opinion, which is good. That's how we have a conversation. So. Um, if anybody would like to ask anybody who has made a statement, a question, that would be the time. I'll go up to somebody talking about that. Hi. We have a question for the audience. <laughs> From out here or just on the board? Yeah. Questioning mind. 
turns it off because there are no rewards. The parents don't think you're cute. The parents are annoyed. Go, go bother your brother. The, uh, your friends, your peers, they don't want you to ask a question. Shh, be quiet. Because we know what's going to be on the test. We can go out and play. But just be quiet. Don't ask any questions. Folks, I wondered what was happening in grade school because in college, I got students who would not question anything. Literally, you could tell them the sky is pink, and they were taking out the sky is pink. Is that going to be on the test? Mm -hmm. You know, that was it. And so this kind of learning is what we're talking about, I'm talking about, when I talk about whether or not CRT can be effectively taught in schools. What will they learn? That's the kind of sorry. So I, I did want to ask uh, Antoine a question. Um, so first I would say, in terms of your definition of CRT, it sounded more like Ibram X. Kennedy's definition of anti-racism, um, which has a political and legislative component. And I, I personally haven't seen a CRT definition for that, but as it pertains to education, uh, it says that unlike some academic disciplines, critical race theory contains an activist dimension. I guess my question is, do you believe that in the K-12 setting, we should have teachers teaching activism? Oh, can you hear me? Okay. Uh, you know, even even that can be can can also be mistake. You know, he's not without without a mistake. Um, again, the sources of critical race theory um, anticipate pushback. So if if the goal of critical race theory is to understand laws and their effect on unjust outcomes, and then to reveal those laws and to inspire change of those laws, then that's good as long as everybody agrees that what they what they find is, is true and good, and everybody agrees that, that we should change the law. What we found in history was that unjust laws were challenged by those who were in charge or who could change the laws. They didn't believe the laws were unjust. And so because the evidence of that challenge, of course, those who grabbed the outcomes of the conversation realized, hey, we have two options. We can either let the law exist, or we can continue to push and push back and try to make sure we contend for the change. Activism is the contention for change. And so activism, what he's referring to is, our environment is resistant to the changes necessary. Be prepared to contend for the changes you think need to be made. I don't think activism, uh, to that degree, I don't think that is going to see this way. That aspect of uh, the response to what critical race theory reveals isn't something, isn't taught by necessarily critical race theory, if you will. Critical race theory is the evaluation, it's the tool. What we do with the results of the tool sort of is up to us. The wielder of the results, you know, uh, they do with what they will. They do nothing, they do something, they pretend, they dismiss, whatever they do. Um, and uh, that's my position on that. So no, to ask your question directly, no, I don't think activism. Um, well, I don't think activism where it pertains to race relationships and the way that we're talking about critical race theory is something that should be taught. I would say that patriotism is a kind of activism. And I think that when we, when we teach our children to defend and protect the American way of life, we are teaching a kind of undercurrent 
activist spirit uh, when we pledge allegiance that we prepare to prepare for the American way of life. Just on that last point, I think when it comes when it comes to activism, it, the, the reason I would disagree with that last point is if everybody agrees on it, then it's not necessarily activism. That's you know that's where it's activism when you have two conflicting parties, and when it comes to patriotism, the, the idea is we all live in the same country and we, we share a history, and so the the patriotism and support thereof wouldn't necessarily be considered activism because. It, it's expected that we would all kind of agree with it. It's when we don't agree with it that it becomes activism. Oh, yes, I do. I didn't know that was, that was okay. I would say that our recent politics would beg a different. People have different ideas about patriotism and what is patriotic, and they have indeed contended. Um, January 6th is a great example, probably the most extreme example. Uh, but I would even say that the Black Lives Matter's movements, where, where it pertains to rights and justices, are patriotic to the American ideal of what it means to create a just and free and fair community. And so that's patriotism as well. So, but, but at the end of the day, we agree that activism requires an, 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 an antagonist. And if there is no antagonist, then we're just doing all the things. So I think we agree.
foundation that's laid there. Um, some of us, if we cheated on our taxes, we knew we were cheating on our taxes. And then next year they changed the rules so that that same thing that we did to cheat on our taxes last time was good. This time it was now legal. Our morality has changed. We don't feel, we don't feel this bad about it. So on some level, outside the home, there is a social level of, of morality that's being laid with law. So I wouldn't say that I would, I would lay the entire teaching of morality on the parent, although I do think the parent is the, guard, the guardian and the, and the gatekeeper of, of morality for their children. Uh, so I guess the answer to your question is mostly yes, but with the caveat that I've learned a ton from my teachers, coaches, um, and other people, ministers outside of my parents' home, because uh, I grew up in a village concept where a lot of us just cared for each other and mutually taught each other. Uh, but I hear what you're saying, it's about the point that the parents should be, should be, uh, have primary control over, over the home teaching of the children. And just one more quick comment, uh, just in terms of finding morality in law, I, I would say be very skeptical and uh, about that just because law once said that black people were property, and we all know that was immoral. And so looking for morality in law is not always, uh, you know, typically what we want to do is look at morality and have our laws reflect the morality, um, and our laws have not always reflected morality. It's the purpose of critical race basically changes with every administration. So we, we ought to keep that in mind. And also I would say that if we're reliant on government to determine what our morality is, we're all in trouble. So I'm sorry, I have only two cents. But um, I got two text questions. I'm going to hit those real quick, and then we'll go back to the guy here. Lydia, would you say that this was just a distraction to the truth? whatever that truth might be. This being what? Teaching uh, this particular subject in the school system. Not my question, I'm just reading what's here. Okay, I think it is a distraction. I don't know what you're defining or what is being defined here as truth, but it, it is a distraction uh, from the individual, from the gestalt, the soul, the aspirations, the dreams, of the individual, which take second uh, standing to the group. And I believe, and I've seen it, I've seen students being herded into groups. The black students have their own graduation. They are, have their own dorm. They are taught, don't aspire to, don't aspire to anything. Your goals don't matter. You are a victim. That's what I see. And it, I find it abhorrent. I cannot imagine taking something like that from someone and telling them they're a victim. Who are the oppressors? Well, this group of white people. So when you have a victim and you have oppressors, then you always need a rescue. And folks, this is going to sound jaded, but it looks to me like an old scam. 
where you have victims and oppressors, and it's all coordinated by the rescuers. Because that's what's necessary for a rescuer to step in and save you. They'll save you as long as you know that you're weak. I've seen students being, I would say, emasculated, but just, uh, you know, benefited if they had uh, of being oppressed, if they had a good story to talk about how they suffered, and or if they were worried that maybe they're not quote, woke enough for their group. There's this constant mental stress on the mind, on the amygdala. And that, to me, is psychological abuse. Um, so to answer your question, I think I did. <laughs> did anybody want to add to that? I was with you on everything that you said because it validates the importance of teaching the topics that we're discussing. That the implicit biases that we constantly are inflicting upon our children, consciously or subconsciously, are bringing those children into a group. And we're, with activity, we're endorsing it. We're saying that that's okay to continue doing that. When you yourself point out that it's not, that it's doing a disservice. So with that premise in mind, why would we not want to do better at educating our kids on where we're coming from, where we're at, and how we can move forward, forward together in more historically-based knowledge, but realizing that our implicit biases are harming our kids more than anything. What? So we're just a, a little bit across uh, speaking on this topic here. Uh, I took traditional American history, you know, the old uh, American history, and I can see that history is repeating itself uh, because one of the byproducts of my 30 years at the university is seeing black students being stripped of their agency, their autonomy, their ability to act for themselves and choose for themselves. I've seen them being treated with the lowest of expectations. No, no, don't worry, it's okay if you can't read. We're not gonna have to be concerned about that. And I've seen them segregated. And folks, once again, once again, by virtue of their skin's color, it looks to me like they are being used to enrich a new group of masters. And I'm gonna use that word, okay? Because it has an impact. I think that Every individual has their moral integrity to express their views, to go after their goals, and to live their life as they choose, and not to be the foil for some other objective. Okay, did you have something you wanted to add? Okay, so this question is for Jessica. If this is a negative form of teaching, what would you say? Or would you say our country has taught it to minorities in full view of the world? Say it one more time. If it is a negative form of teaching, would you say our country has taught this to the minorities in full view of the world? A full view or in full view? In full view. In other words, did we put the people in that position by the way our teaching system works. Well, I think critical race, uh, nope, here we go. I don't have this one. <clears throat> Just give me a check, but, yeah. I think critical race 
oppressor and the oppressed. And by, by just by doing that, you set up a war between, between cultures, between skin colors. And when you do that, that is a negative way of teaching. <clears throat> instead, of, um, instead of going back and looking at history and seeing what, um, what happened in the 60s, what happened in the civil rights movement, why did Martin Luther King uh, need to say that um, he had a dream. Why did he need to say that he had, uh, he wanted people to be, um, he wanted people to be judged by the character that was in them instead of their, by their skin color? Well, because there was oppression. There was oppression. But in teaching back about our history, we need to go back and look at what was taking place then. We need to look at, uh, we need to read his letters from the Birmingham jail to see what the situation was back then. We, we, need, we don't need to have uh, a third grader or a fifth grader who's white be shamed and say, you are responsible about that. And that's what critical race theory does. It, uh, it, it asks that you hold yourself responsible for everything that your, your race has done in the past. And so uh, I, I think we need to teach the truth and what happened. We need to teach uh, about uh, the, the lunch counters. We need to teach about uh, how um, they, uh, young black people sitting at the lunch counter were denied service, and then they were uh, made fun of, and then they were ridiculed, and then they were arrested, and then they were put in jail. We, we need that, but we don't need uh, that. Even though that's negative, that's not negative teaching, because it's bringing forward the truth. And that's the way I view it should be taught, instead of bringing the past up and blaming people for the past. Today. Okay, so I guess we're at slight cross purposes here. So let me give you the next question. This is not directed at anybody. So uh, if CRT is erased from the education system, what would stop them, put quotes on that, right, from erasing the rest of black history from the education system? So whoever would like to start, I'll give everybody a chance to comment that is interested. Um, okay, well, can I, can I respond to Absolutely. my sister here? Um, I, appreciate, I appreciate your balance there. I think it's an important, um, I, hear, I hear your, am I, am I on? Okay. I hear your, um, I'm good, right? Or, yeah, just, okay. I hear, I hear your desire to, to tell the truth, but not to shame. And to bring, to bring um, not to, not to sort of uh, cast uh, the sins of what generation saved everything on the on the sins of, of, of the following generation. Uh, and, and predominantly, I would agree with that. I would, I would like to say this though. No, there's two things to note in that. Number one, the progress that America made in those times was not made without great struggle. <laughs> The voices, uh, the progress that many of the white Americans that I get a chance to speak to, uh, many of them cons conservative and many of them uh, would have 
have sided with many of the sides that were pushing. In other words, you mentioned the, the, the young black people who were sitting in the in the in the restaurants and weren't going to serve. Well, there's a whole there's a whole population who's not serving them. Uh, that that progress that we have made as Americans did not become absolute struggle, and the struggle was against people who were saying that they love Jesus and they love America and they think that black people shouldn't be where they are. Those are the same people saying now, hey, we made progress. And so it's difficult for many in the black community to say, we did make the progress, no thanks to you, because we were fighting some of what you are doing to get the progress. You want credit for the progress while fighting against the progress. That's number one, we have to acknowledge that, that it, took, it took fight there. Number two, and this is more important, progress is inspirational not shameful. And so when we teach our kids about where America was and where we come from, step A, step B, step C, step D, we made these mistakes, we, we, we established these laws, we constructed the society in a certain type of way, and we learned that that was the wrong way to do it. And so we changed, and we tried to fix it, and we did fix it some, but then we learned that we didn't quite get it all out, and so we did fix it tomorrow. America is progressing, progress is inspirational. Progress is not shameful. If we want to teach history absent of progress, then I understand the fear, the shame. Don't talk about progress, you say, hey, white people did this, and they're always going to be like that. But America's history doesn't reflect that. America's history reflects that we were, we were this, we did this, and we did this, and we slowly got it better and better. And so now generation coming, Here's your turn to take whatever it is that we missed or whatever new challenges that have shown up in the context that we now live in and to continue the inspirational progressional work that we have made in race relationships. Now your son and daughter comes home saying, hey, I'm a white person, and yeah, we as a race did this thing in the past, but we also did these things inspirationally to fix that. And I have a way to now look at my black brothers and sisters to understand why they have a historical narrative that caused them to be reticent uh, against the, uh, the, the American American movement, why they have this sort of trauma present, but I also know that I have a role to play in solving a lot of these issues. Progress is inspirational. Shame is not the absolute inevitable outcome of troubled history. We can teach the history, teach the progress next to the history, and inspire a generation of white, black, and otherwise kids about a, racial, a, a racially equality future instead of and, and fight against this this uh, the shame. Because I don't think that any white child should come home ashamed of who they are because of what their parents or grandparents or great grandparents has done. Brief timeout. Sorry. Yes.